Hello, and welcome to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock-flavoured podcast. This episode, Loz and I return to the Young Kingdoms to catch up on Elric's plunge into the watery depths at the hands of his jealous cousin and competitor for the ruby throne, Yerkoon. We'll be looking at book two of Elric of Melnibonair as Moorcock continues his habit of very helpfully splitting his early novels into parts, making his books easily digestible in podcast-sized chunks. Moorcock has talked about this habit, part of his formula for writing novels, in a few articles over the years, and it shakes out a little bit like this. The idea is that you spend a couple of days setting things up before you write, and during this time you establish a few things. Number one, you establish a plot. Model it on the Maltese Falcon or the Grail Quest. People are seeking something important. In modern screenwriting parlance, we'd probably call that a MacGuffin. A fallible, reluctant hero who gets dragged into a conflict with supernatural powers. A list of things you'll use. A key event to take place every four pages. A list of coherent images. For example, a shrieking sentient sword. Or a tower that phases in and out of reality. A rough structure, if not an actual plot. A list of fantastic images. For example, a city of screaming statues. A time frame. Will the story unfold over years? Or is it six days to save the world? And finally, go into lockdown. No phones, no internet, no visitors. And then you write, beginning with a mystery that you'll reveal bit by bit and deepen it as you go. Aim for 60,000 words. Divide into four sections, roughly 15,000 words apiece. Although we have found from doing some of his early novels that he tends to divide them into three. But anyway... Then divide each into six chapters and keep chapters at 2.5 thousand words maximum. He suggests using the Lester Dent master plot formula. Now, of course, you can look this up, but in summary, you must never have a revelation of something that wasn't already established. So you can't unmask a murderer who wasn't a character established already. All your main characters have to be in the first part. All your main themes and everything else has to be established in the first part, developed in the second and third and resolved in the last. And there's always a sidekick to make the responses the hero isn't allowed to make, to get frightened, to add a lighter note, to offset the hero's morbid speeches, and so on. The hero has to supply the narrative dynamic, and therefore can't have any common sense. Any one of us, in those circumstances, would say, what, dragons, demons? You've got to be joking. So the hero has to be driven, and when people are driven, common sense disappears. You don't want your reader to make common sense objections, you want them to go with the drive but you've got to have somebody around who'll act as a sort of chorus. When in doubt, descend into a minor character. So, when you reach an impasse, and you can't move the action any further with your major character, switch to a minor character's viewpoint, which will allow you to keep the narrative moving, and give you some time to brew something. So, it all sounds so, so simple from Michael Murcock's perspective, but it worked for him and he did write novels in little more than three days. So on this episode of Breakfast in the Ruins, we're looking at that middle chunk of Elric of Melnibonair. And I'm reflecting on the fact that the amount of time I spend preparing, recording, supping beverages with laws as we chew the fat, editing, mixing and then uploading will in truth probably not be a whole lot less than Moorcock spent actually writing it. And that's incredible. And for someone like me that always daydreamed of being a genre writer and a creator of fantastic worlds but lack the talent, application and inspiration to do so, it's just quite awe-inspiring. Anyway, enough of me, let's get down to business. Derry and Tom's awaits, and I understand Loz has booked as a table. I'll see you up there.
back in Derry and Tom's roof garden and I'm joined once again by Loz. Hello Loz. Hello. How are you? Alan. Hello oh, Alan. Hello. Yes I'm, uh, I'm very good. Excellent. On this Friday night. Yeah and as it's Friday night we've already kicked off a little bit with some of our libations. Uh, we started with, what did we start with? Uh, Cloudwater Cloud Brewing Company Soft and Hazy Pale Ale. Which wasn't too bad. Our pale ale is a beer for everyone. Everyday moments. Huh? Like really. now. Conversation with friends. <laughs> ideal. Or quiet relaxation after work and aims to provide a balance between new wave hops, yeast esters. I like a good yeast based ester. Mm, no, about no, you. Fucking no, idea no, no idea. And easy drinkability. It's full of ripe tropical fruit flavours that linger over a finish that's soft, juicy, and low on bitterness to leave your taste buds satisfied but your palate fresh. Or another way of reviewing it is it tastes a bit like brew dog. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah it was all right. No, it was L- nice. like brew dog, but less problematic. Yeah. yeah, sort of a politically correct brew dog, <laughs> if you will. Yeah, uh, uh, aroma and flavour: mango, pineapple, and tangerine, with a light-lasting malt character. Body: light to medium body with spritzy carbonation. Aftertaste: soft and juicy orange, low bitterness. I think that's one of the problems with the craft beer movement is what, they how do fucking pretentious. They, they do procrastinate, don't they? <laughs> yes, at least with it, you get a decent wine, you yeah. can't read it because it's in some kind of foreign language. Yeah, yeah. Whereas they've gone full Julie Gould. Yeah, is that has it got a food kind of match on it? No, thank goodness. Uh, um, I wouldn't have bought it if it had. Cool blue Doritos, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Possibly a cheesy one. Yeah, I don't know. But and nevertheless, it was pleasant. I liked it. But we have now moved on to. Seven Brothers Brewery, slinging it out stout. No, slinging it out stout. A chocker stout. Made with uncycled Kellogg's Cocoa Pops. What is an upcycled Cocoa Pop? Well, I don't like to guess, to be honest. I presume it's just like a job lot of Cocoa Pops that Kellogg's don't want because mm. they're the wrong shape. They might they're be square 17 years old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> been there a while. Yeah, but apparently it's... Oh, right, I see. A chocolate stout brewed using upcycled Kellogg's Cocoa Pops provided as part of their sustainability programme. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess when, um, when they've got loads of out-of-date Cocoa Pops... Yeah. Rather than giving them to the homeless. Yeah. <laughs> they but, give them to a brewery to the next stout. The thing is, if you give them to the homeless, you need to provide milk as well. Don't you? Uh, well yeah, dry yeah. That's just not a good business model. And, that, no, it's rubbish. Right. Okay, uh, well, let's give it a go anyway. Uh, I like it. That's actually very light for a stout. It's good, isn't it? Not bad at all. Uh, not bad at all. Coming off a pale ale, a good pudding, that's not a bad transition. A good pudding beer, I would say. Yeah. So anyway, we've probably gone a little bit off topic already. As, yeah. However... Like, we're back here to do um, Elric of Melnibane book two. We are. Although, disclaimer, straight up front, book three is really, really fucking short. So we're doing most of book two, and yeah. then we'll do the end of book two and book three next time around. But leave you on a cliffhanger, yeah. obviously. You know, we're not going to sleep you late. Not a very good cliffhanger. No, to, to be, be fair. fair. Yeah. <laughs> and, it's all right. And he did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's not bad. Yeah, Elric but, and a lovely cup of tea. Yeah. It's, it's in, the, in the pantheon of cliffhangers, it's not the best. <laughs> no. But it'll do. It'll do for now. So, we last left Elric. He was booted overboard by Smirk and Yakun to sink potentially to his death after leading the fleet and defending Imria from a 
fleet of reavers. He was being very indecisive. The one thing, oh, let's follow him. Oh, let's not. Oh, yeah. bugger it, let's follow him. And yeah. then gets booted over the top and uh, started sinking into the sea. Yeah, I think I think it's fair to say that as, as far as his um, country mates were concerned, he wasn't really doing the job in terms of being a decisive leader. He wasn't the greatest admiral of all time, was he? No, no, he wasn't. So Yakun basically solved everybody's problem by kicking him overboard. And so he sinks down into the deep. He does. So where we begin, Elric is sinking into the deep, dragged down by his armour. Wonder what happens to Orbeck's sword. He had Orbeck's sword, didn't he? Yeah, he did, yeah. So that's probably at the bottom of the sea somewhere. So, as he sinks down, let's have a little read. The roaring in his ears gradually faded to a whisper, so that it sounded as if little voices were speaking to him. The voices of the water elementals with whom, in his youth, he had had a kind friendship. Uh, a kind of friendship. Yeah. It was probably kind as well. Yeah. Yeah. And the pain in his lungs faded. The red mist cleared from his eyes and he thought he saw the faces of his father, Sadric, of Cimmeril, and, fleetingly, of Yerkun. Stupid Yerkun. For all that he prided himself that he was a Melnibonean, he lacked the Melnibonean subtlety. He was as brutal and direct as some of the young kingdom barbarians he so much despised. And now Elric began to feel almost grateful to his cousin. This is something of a theme, I his think. His life of, of was over. Chapter. Yeah, his life was over. The conflicts which tore his mind would no longer trouble him. His fears, his torments, his loves and his hatreds all lay in the past, and only oblivion lay before him. As the last of his breath left his body, he gave himself wholly to the sea, to Strasher, lord of all the water elementals, once the comrade of Melnibonian folk. And as he did this, he remembered the old spell which his ancestors had used to summon Strasher, the spell became unbidden into his dying brain. Yeah, which brings me to a, a major problem I have with a lot of fantasy books, namely poetry. Poem. <laughs> namely poetry. Poems and songs. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. poems and songs. Songs, probably worse, but, but you know, it, what is disguised here is... Yeah. Not a great poem. No. It's all right. It yeah. doesn't even rhyme, does it? A lot of it? I think it's all in, in the delivery. It is. So yeah. if you had Shatner reading it, yeah. I'd probably go with it. Do you want to try that? <laughs> do you want to give it a Shatner go? I can't do Shatner, I don't think. Well, Waters of the sea, thou givest birth. And were our milk and mother both? In, no, it's not working. In days when skies were overcast, you who were first shall be last. That's, yeah. that's similarly terrible. Yeah, so... One thing we have learned, and this particular version of the podcast is neither of us can do impressions of William Shatner. Yeah, pretty terrible. Um, yeah. And we've already gone down a terrible track because I did an awful Schwarzenegger impression <laughs> in you? the birthday episode, which <laughs> I, I probably shouldn't have raised. Um, so maybe we should just make a rule now. No more impressions. Apart from Sh- Connery, obviously. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah okay. Yeah. Well, do you want to do the next one in, in Connery? Uh, she rulers. Uh, fathers are all blood. <laughs> Thine aid is short. Thine aid is sought. Your blood, so <laughs> salt is blood. Our blood, your salt. Your blood, the blood of man. You see, that's that's actually not it's a bit terrible. Scottish. Yeah, but you know, yeah. I'm not doing the rest of it. So no, I was I was just about to try a Christoph Lambert there, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. So Strasher, Christopher Walken would be good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no. no, Strasher, eternal king, eternal sea. Thine aid is sought by me. See, it rhymes. Sorry. For enemies of thine and mine, seek to defeat our destiny and drain away our sea. That to me doesn't sound like a spell. No, it's it's just a rubbish poem. 
no al- although we, we are in some ways blessed on this occasion because last week I recorded Jew in the School Part 2 with Natasha. Oh, yeah. The reason that didn't come out before the final programme episode is because two reasons, rum and dogs. Yeah. So Neil's still working on the editing and mixing on that one. <laughs> Thank goodness. I'll Did, leave it to the listeners to decide whether they can tell. <laughs> yeah, and also... <laughs> uh, these things were an issue. Don't forget not to feed rum to dogs. Yeah, well, no, we didn't do that. All right, okay, just um, check. But Bo Gentle does about <clears throat> yeah. five pages yeah, of, yeah. of um, beat poetry. Yeah, at least the, <laughs> yeah, at least you, you know you can imagine him busting some shit out yeah. with that one. But yeah, yeah. I think this, this is kind of... You're sinking, you've got loads of armour on, you're about to die, you're kind of contemplating what your life's like, and then what pops into your head after a couple of faces is a bit of a poem, really. Yeah, well, of course, you know, he, he, he does claim that he went on purpose. He does. Because, of course, Strasher, yeah. you know, listens to his, well, his he, spell. He has that. So we get a little bit of Young Kingdom's world building as uh, Strasher responds. So this is the first time we really kind of get really deep down. Well, not the first time chronolo- um, in terms of writing. No, in the book. But in, in chronologically for Elric, this is the first time we get down into a little bit of this elemental kind of stuff, which will be a, a kind of a major feature in this book. But Elric's pretty emo, as usual, saying he didn't really mean to summon the elemental. He's all right with drowning, really. So it's all, you know, it's all cool, just let me drown. But Strasher disagrees, and Elric, now convinced he's just dreaming, yeah. says, oh, all right, send me home then. So Strasher takes Elric to a vast cavern to recuperate, and they talk of fate and higher events than Elric's struggle, Elric's trivial struggle with Yerkoon. They do, and I think uh, the particular bit where he goes into Strasser's kingdom, very Aquaman, I think. It is, actually. The description yeah. of him is very, is very Poseidon. It yeah. is, but I think the, the whole... Having watched... I've only seen Aquaman once, but when I saw it, it did remind me of some weird psychedelic 70s kind of Rodney Marsh. Rodney Marsh? Yeah, the football <laughs> sorts in there, didn't it? Rodney Matthews. And I, I was expecting to not particularly like that Aquaman movie, but I loved it just for its influences. Yeah, I did. It was great, yeah. Um, all the crazy Deep One stuff yeah, around yeah. the fishing boat, all the Hollow Earth stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, all the um, Ginger Dolph Lundgren. Yeah, always a <laughs> was, winner. was pretty good. But that's what it kind of reminded me of, of, of kind of, you know, when we're talking about the TV show and everything. Yeah. You know, so, some certain scenes really, you think, right, if you if you did the first book, for example, yeah, you've got a Aqu- Aquaman kingdom briefly mm-hmm. there. Yeah. That's what it reminded me of. Yes, and uh, yet, well, yet again, it's another example <coughs> of um, if they end up doing this book yeah. for a TV series... People who are not aware of it and aware of, like, you know... Yeah, it's, it's like, oh, they're following all the, the, the tropes yeah, it's, of it's, it's films. it's going to look really derivative, isn't it? It's, it's, like, it's a real yeah. challenge for them, I think. Yeah, I do, yeah. But anyway, so Strasher and Elric have a, a big, deep discussion. Painfully, Elric raised himself into a sitting position. You spoke earlier of intertwined destinies. Do you then know something of my destiny? And Strasher says, a little, I think. Our world grows old. Once the elementals were powerful on your plane, and the people of Melnibane all shared that power. But now our power wanes, as does yours. Something is changing. There are intimations that the lords of the higher worlds are again taking an interest in your world. Perhaps they fear that the folk of the young kingdoms have forgotten them. Perhaps the folk of the young kingdoms threaten to bring in a new age, where gods and beings such as myself no longer shall have a place. I suspect there is a certain unease upon the plains of the higher worlds. So we got that a prefiguring to some degree of Elric's fate and the fate of the yeah. world, which is happening. But of course, 
this is written after the Coram novels, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. And the Coram novels, which we'll get to at some point, is all about the upheaval of the higher worlds at the hands of Coram and the hand of Quill and the eye of Rhea. Yeah, I think you get the Coram books. I read the Coram books before, I think I mentioned it before, before the Elric books. Yeah. So Ariok was obviously, in the Coram books, is a vastly different beast to, mm. to the Elric ones. Yeah. It's starting to just link up little bits and pieces that sit across all the novels in terms of these chaos gods. And once again, we had a discussion in the final programme episode with um, with Hussein regarding Moorcock recycling all of his own material. Yeah, yeah. And this is another example of that. I think the thing is, that if, you, if you've not read any Elric books and you start with this one, it's, it is, you know, it does build the world quite yeah. quite well so there's no mention of you know mention chaos gods and things like that but this is where it kind of first gets introduced isn't it yeah um and it's, i suppose at this point is it 73 he wrote this so it's 12 years after the dreaming city but he's still only in his early 30s and he's already developed quorum he's already developed he's written the history of the room stuff he's written the first quorum trilogy um he's, he's now kind of revisiting elric so he can to some degree, retrospectively start to draw some of these bits and pieces together. I think he does it really nicely. Mm. But this this whole kind of powers of the higher higher worlds and all that business um, starts to become... Uh, whereas in, in the Hawkmoon novels, there is no pantheon as such. That's what I like about Hawkmoon as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, with Elric and Coram, everything to some <coughs> extent and the fate of the character and the fate of the world is driven by the higher powers. Yeah, so I think that the Hawkmoon world was kind of, it has been suggested in it that that's where law kind of took over pretty much, wasn't it? Yeah, but there's no actual reference to law chaos no, no, in any of the books. But well, that's what's good about it. But yeah. Grand Britannia are almost the, the um, agent to law in that yeah. kind of world, really, aren't they? Yeah. Because they want to bring order. It just happens to be insane. Yeah. Um, which he kind of revisits one of the gods of law in one of the later books. Mm. The one that Miggy well, yeah, 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 based on Margaret Thatcher. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's right. Uh, well, of course, the, the the only pantheon that is really described in the history of the room stuff is the Grand Britannian pantheon. Yeah, Harold Wilson, <laughs> Churchill, and the Beatles. Wasn't yeah, Cherchill, uh, the, the howl, howling god. <laughs> what was that? And uh, I can't remember exactly how they were couched, but it's basically John Paul, George, and Ringo. Yeah, it might be Rungo. It was something yeah. a bit like yeah. yeah. So basically, it's just contemporary pop and culture representations. So they have this big, deep discussion, and Strasher gives Elric one final foreboding piece of notice when he says, We shall meet again before your life ends, Elric. I hope that I shall be able to aid you once more, and remember that our brothers of air and fire will try to aid you also. And remember the beasts, they too can be of service to you. There is no need to suspect their help. But beware of gods, Elric. Beware of the lords of the higher worlds, and remember that their aid and their gifts must always be paid for. Crucial words of warning. It is, and also obviously preempting what happens later. Yeah, absolutely. So, chapter two, titled "A New Emperor and an Emperor Renewed," the Akun and the Melnibonian fleet limp back to Imria under sail power as the slave crews are mostly dead from this, their unnatural yeah, exertions. This is one of my favourite chapters, actually. I really yeah. liked it. It was cool. It jumps from different characters as well, yeah. doesn't it? So yeah, it does. So our first introduction of Divin Tivar's mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot of Divin Tivar in these, yeah, in these yeah. upcoming chapters. Yeah. And it's really cool because I didn't necessarily remember it. So he's kind of like the 
so he's a Melnabonian, isn't he? But not yeah. a a dickhead, really. He's yeah. Elric's best mate, isn't he? And, yeah. Um, he kind of balances out Elric a bit, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. And he's got his, um, of course, Yakun's all cock a hoop and full of himself. Admiral, Admiral Megum Colin, less so. He's kind yeah. of keeping his own counsel. He's probably struck his tash yeah, trying to walk yeah. in a straight line. Absolutely, yeah. He's, he's thinking, oh, well, you know, Yakun did the deed, but maybe if it had gone the other way, that might have been a, a better solution. Whereas Divin Tavar's morning Elric on his ship, which has got the mo- most brilliant it's brilliant, name, isn't it? To Harley's particular satisfaction. It, and when it, I read that, the first thing I thought of was Ian M. Banks. So did I. That's exactly <laughs> what I wrote down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah. Um, yeah that was one of my favourite bits about the Ian M. Banks books. Just the names of the ships are brilliant, aren't yeah. they? But this, yeah, I never noticed that before, ever. Yeah. And I was like, what a brilliant name for a ship. Yeah, yeah. And it, it does make you think, doesn't it? Um, the, these little things kind of plant seeds in people's brains. Yeah. Uh, I, wonder, I, I wonder. I reckon I wonder. he must have read them. But that's, that's an absolutely brilliant ship name. But he's mulling over the possibility of vengeance, should it be the case that Elric was, in fact, bumped off. And, yeah, you're right, this is a really fantastic chapter that really reinforces kind of the decayed, decadent evil of Melnibone in high society yeah. and clarifies quite clearly why Kuhn uh, is more suitable fit for the Emperor. Yeah. As the city learns of Elric's death as they pull in, and the normal form would be to mourn in traditional Melnibonean fa- fashion. And the wild dance of Mel Nabone, <laughs> yeah, which right. is absolutely it's brilliant. absolutely fantastic. It's not for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> so it says, next night and for seven nights, in all the wild dance of Mel Nabone would fill the streets. Potions and petty spells would ensure that no one slept, for sleep was forbidden to any Mel Nabonean, old or young, while a dead emperor was mourned. Naked, the dragon princes would prowl the city, taking any young woman they found and filling her with their seed for it was tradition. That if an emperor died, then nobles of Melnabene must create as many children of aristocratic blood as was possible. Music slaves would howl from the top of every tower. Other slaves would be slain and some eaten. Yeah. <laughs> Bring a bit of cannibalism. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. a, you know, it's a feast. Yeah, well, they're, they're fucking assholes, aren't they? The wrong ones, For the they? most part, yeah. So, so that'll be interesting how they uh, crowbar that into a. Because when I was reading it, I, was, I keep going back to this TV show and I was like. Yeah, how would you do that? So that mm. would be like a, a great flashback. Yeah. Well, just just the reference to music slaves. Yeah. Because we've read the first book one. Yeah, yeah. We know that even just a simple reference to music slaves has all sorts of horrible connotations. Yeah. And I think we touched on how bad the music must have been. Yeah. I think. Yeah. But, absolutely. So pulling into the harbour, DT. Yeah. Well, as I'll call diving to the because it's easier. Mulls over the bad omens. Um, portended by an emperor drowning and going to save Pyre, the tentacled whisperer of impossible secrets. And his plan is basically to go and sulk in the dragon caves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's not much of a plan, is it? No, not really. But I think he it also shows that he's probably slightly different to everybody else as yeah. well. You know, he's not going, ah, oh, let's uh, look forward to the wild dance. Yeah. <laughs> I'm off to go and hang out with some dragons. Yeah. Meanwhile, Yakun docks and swaggers like a twat <laughs> up to Simmeril. <laughs> Who twigs what's gone down, and um, she's not particularly happy. She doesn't do her personal guard any favours, though, and calls for them to kill Yakun. Yeah. Yeah. A few of them draw the swords. Yeah. Um, but the captain of a guard takes a particularly pragmatic approach in uh, stepping in and making sure that nothing can go down. He orders his men to sheathe their swords, but one, uh, a young fella... Who's, yeah, uh, yeah. Who's very pro Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, uh, he's not having that... So, poor lad, he steps up 
and uh, and this unpleasant captain kills him from behind. Yeah, then we go into the mind of the captain, don't mm. we? Which again, I, I, I suppose that a lot of modern fantasy novels are really tight third person where mm. you just get their viewpoint. Yeah, the, there's POVs all over the shop in this. Just this chapter, isn't yeah, there? there is. Yeah, which I kind of it, it doesn't seem that jarring when you read it. In, in a way, you know, um, I kind of see where he's coming from. Yeah, I think because you know Elric's you know not there obviously. And yeah, he thinks Elric's dead. You need to balance out with with different views of how they view Yakun, isn't it? So, yeah. so you've got some going. Mm, I suppose he'll be all right. A couple yeah. Going, they hate him, and then you've got others going. Mm. Yeah. And it says the captain, who was a practical man, said to his warriors in a low voice, "Sheath your weapons and salute your new emperor." Only the young guardsman who loved Simmeril disobeyed. But he slew the emperor. My lady Simmeril said so. What of it? He's emperor now. Kneel, or you'll be dead in a minute. The young warrior gave a wild shout and leapt toward Yakum, who stepped back, trying to free his arms from the folds of his cloak. He had not expected this, but it was the captain who leapt forward, his own sword drawn, and hacked down the youngster so that he gasped, half-turned, and fell at Yakum's feet. So he has this display of loyalty to Yakum, but, you know, thinking about things pragmatically, not entirely unreasonable, I don't no, think. No. And then you've got uh, this particular bit, which kind of sums him up a bit. Leering, the Emperor Yakun presented himself before her. He reached out his hand and caressed her neck, her cheek, her mouth, and let his hand fall so it grazed her breast. Sister, he said, thou art mine entirely now. Mm. It's not, not ideal, is no, it? No, not really. For the second episode running, incestuous <laughs> behaviour raised its ugly yeah, head. incest. Uh, it seems to be a common theme throughout the work. Yeah. So he uh, he sends Simmeril off to her tower to be guarded by the captain and some of his men. And then Yakun looks back at the corpse of the young warrior and says, and feed that to her slaves tonight so he can continue serving her. He smiled, and the captain smiled too. Appreciating the joke. <laughs> That's right. Hilarious. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He felt it was good to have a proper emperor in Melnibane again. So the captain's a true a true Melnibanean. And then he, you get his kind of... Uh... His, his plan for the next kind of 10, 15 years, don't mm. you? Where Maldoboni is, is out there taking over the young kingdoms again. What luxuries of torment would he bring up those upstart sea lords, particularly Count Bald, Smeorg and Balded? He's back in the game. Yeah. Well, you know, fair play. I, I, I can't say I'm a fan of Smeorg and Balded because he's called Smeorg and Balded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What Unless Bob Hoskins could do a really, really charismatic turn as Smeog and Baldhead, I'm pretty much anti-Baldhead. Yeah, maybe, what was he called before he went bald? <laughs> Did he have a mullet? Smeog and, <laughs> and Comover. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was ten years before, and then before that, yeah. luxurious locks. Yeah. So he's happy because Yakun is a true Melnibanean and he sees opportunity for himself. So, yeah. marching at the head of his army, Yakun struts, it says... To the Tower of Da'ar Putna. Yeah. The Tower of Emperors. And they go through the thronging streets where people prostrate themselves. And he enters the palace in the Hall of the Ruby Throne. But his cocky, triumphant stride is halted when he sees coward figure on the throne. Which is my favourite bit. It's just Ace. Yeah. So, so you have Yakun, who's Johnny Big Potatoes, cock in a walk. <laughs> Check me out. Yeah. That dude's just, yeah, I've, they've all got my back. It's going to be Ace. Be looking forward to this. I'm on the throne. A up. Yeah. <laughs> Who's this cowled figure? Yeah. 
Well, it's only bloody hell, Rick, isn't it? Oh, is it? Who'd have thought it? Blimey. How did, how did he get back there? <laughs> so, yeah. Who's the guy who fell off the, the wall? <laughs> Divin Tarkan. Yeah, if, if only Divin Tarkan yeah. could come back. Um, actually, as, as, as a quick callback to our Dreaming City episode, when we were, frankly, appalled and disgusted that Smeog and Ballhead got a, a stat block in yeah. the game, but Divin Tarkan didn't. Divin Tarkan did. He did, didn't he? Yeah, I, think I found that. it. I found it, so... Didn't he have balance of 15 or something? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah they, they put a nice little gag in there. That he's, yeah. He had a terrible balance. Um, so, anyway, yeah, Coombe's party is completely, utterly smashed. And that um, would be such an ace scene Yeah, in in a TV show. Yeah. There he is, bigging it up. Yeah. So, chapter three, traditional justice. <laughs> Which is quite funny. Yeah, it is quite yeah. entertaining. Dive into Var and his men seize Yakun and he creates... A fuss like a frustrated nipper. He's he's super not happy in he any is. way. He pants like a wolf. Yep. And he he realizes it's the traditional thing, isn't it? The bully who thought everybody had his back was yeah. a bit like, oh crap. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I've made a right balls up this. Yeah. So while Elric's playing it cool, yeah, Coon tries to summon Ariok. Yeah. <laughs> going, oh, Ariok. Oh, Elric's, come on, Elric's a twat. Come and sort him out. Yeah, but that didn't work. Yeah. But, but, it's, it's but that's the man. first thing where you see, obviously, a Melanobonian trying to summon a... Well, you don't know who Ariok is at the time. Well, he's a Duke of Hell. Yeah. But what, what is that? Yeah. Um, Although, if, of course, um, because we've read everything. things prior, Ar- Ariok does does make a showing in uh, The Dreaming City, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. But at this point, we've kind of got this stage where we have a description where people are... You know, the idea that a Chaos Lord would answer someone's call... Yeah, this point like, is, is like a real fucking long shot. Yeah, so I think uh, Elric's laughing at this. Yeah. Uh, Ariok does not hear you. Chaos is weak upon this earth now. And it needs a greater sorcery in the earth to bring them back, which, again, a bit of foreshadowing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and actually, yeah, Coon is a little bit in awe of Elric's return and the possibility that Elric has these powerful supernatural friends. Yeah. I think he's, 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 a bit, um, he's a bit taken aback. Um, and, he's, and he says, you know, you'd vowed not to use your sorcery. And Elric's like, oh, you know. He said, I want a proper Melnibonian. Well, I am now, because I've used it. And (laughs) because of that, it's going to be hilarious. Yeah. So this stage, Ariok just ain't interested. And that obviously changes in the 60s books, because Ariok turns up pretty much every time Elric can't open a jar of jam. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, Ariok, aid me. And he's he's, he's always there. So, um, yeah, sorry, we're just... um, Loz is just going to crack open a couple more beers. Let's see what we're going to get. I'm quite excited. Right, so what we've got here? First pod, vanilla stout. Yep. Let's give this a go. So where were we? Yeah, we're talking about the... Uh, yeah, you were right. So if uh, Elric stubbed his toe, he'd yeah. get Ariok involved. Wouldn't That's he? right, yeah. Yeah, I can't get the cellophane <laughs> off this Blu-ray. Yeah. Ariok, aid me! Which is quite tricky, yeah. I do think. And, and you know, Ariok, Ariok, to be fair, does does generally turn up, but at the moment, he's having none of it. <laughs> I've not got a bottle opener. I'm yeah. in the middle of the sighing desert. Yeah. Come on, Ariok. So, yeah. so meanwhile, uh, DT turns up, bringing Simmeril in, as well yeah. as the captain of our guard, and we learn his name at this point. Yeah. Um, Which is... Valoric, Valoric, Captain yeah. Valoric, and Valoric is is, is attempting um, to endear himself to Elric, saying, "Oh, you know, I thought you were dead. My loyalty is to the throne." Yeah. But Elric is That's is exactly feeling. How he said it. Yeah, El- Elric's not having it. 
So he uh, he kind of condemns him to a pretty terrible but very Melnibanean punishment. Yeah, so I think that's what it's called. You know, traditional justice. He basically Elric in this chapter is a bit like, yeah, you wanted a, a Melnibanean emperor. Yeah, I'll give you one of them. You know, I don't want to do it, but I'll do it. Cause it yeah, he's kind of given up a bit, a bit stroppy teenager again. Yeah. But yeah, Valeric, not so good for him, is it? Yeah, so he's, he's not quite sobbing, but... He says, slay me swiftly, doesn't he? Do he not does. punish me more. Yeah, but he asks how he slew the young warrior, and he says, with my sword, I cut him down. It was a clean stroke, but one. And Elric says, but what became of the corpse? Prince Yakun told me to feed it to Princess Cimmeril's slaves. <laughs> I understand. Very well, Prince Yakun. You may join us at the feast tonight while Captain Valeric entertains us with his dying. Yakun's face was almost as pale as Elric's. What do you mean? The little pieces of Captain Valeric's flesh, which our Doctor Jest will carve from his limbs, will be the meat on which you feast. You may give instructions as to how you wish the Captain's flesh prepared. We should not expect you to eat it raw, cousin. So at this point, even even DT and and Cimmeril are are pretty surprised by this. Yeah. But then he kind of takes himself down a peg or two. Because he, he sends them away, mopes a bit, as is Duriger for the Albino, obviously. And then he kind of shares that he's thinking about just banishing Yakun. Yeah, because DT, as we call him, Simril, go, uh, yeah, that was really clever cruelty. Yeah. We, we like that, like what you did. Yeah. It'll be hilarious at yeah. dinner. And then he goes, yeah, yeah, um, I think I'll just banish Yakun. Yeah, and, and everybody's going, ooh, I won't do that. Yeah, she's like, like ooh. He thought ooh. about it. He, he just booted sure? you off a ship. But anyway, he, he, he fucks off and has a rest. And then a bit comes, of a lie down, doesn't he? Yeah, he goes for a lie oh, down. Which is a constitutional. Which is fair. He's had, a, he's had a rough couple of days. Yeah, he's died. He's yeah. come back. He's met some guy with a green beard. So he goes for a kip and then uh, he comes back and everybody's in the hall. Dr. Jest is there sharpening his knives, but something's not quite right. Simmeril's not there. Yakun's not there. And Divin Tavar rushes in, covered in blood. Well, yeah, Coon's only used sorcery to get away, aren't they? He has, and, it, and it, it's a very cool description as well for all the role players out there. Yeah. It's, uh, Do it. Describe it. Uh, I will. I'm just going to open the can. Okay. Well, while you're preparing yourself, I'll just read a little bit from this. Oh, no, the writing's fucking tiny. Yeah, let's put my uh, yeah. <laughs> matron past my reading spectacles. Yeah. Then, all at once, the doors of the throne room burst open, and there was Divin Tivar, gasping and bloody, his clothes slashed and his flesh gashed. And following him, following him in came a mist, a swelling mist of dark purples and unpleasant blues. It was this mist that groaned. Mm, groaning mist, I like that. Um, unpleasant blues. Yeah. That was like some of the... U2 stuff they did on Rattlebone Pong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd that, do me in. Yeah, that's what I imagine it has. Yeah. And then it's Yakun's sorcery. He conjured the, conjured the groaning mist to aid him in his escape. Groaning mist, that's probably that's a D&D thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I bet you any money there will be some kind of ritual in the Stormbringer RPG called Groaning Mist. Yeah. If there isn't, I'd be really good yeah, at this yeah, point. Yeah. It tried to follow him from the city, but the mist engulfed me and I lost my senses. So once again, he's lost Simmeril. Yeah. So she's gone. Valeric's gone with him. Bloody Valeric. Yeah. And a hundred warriors who remain secretly loyal to him. So he's got his posse. He's got yes. Simmeril. He's got Valeric, who is now his faithful villainous captain. So the bugger off. And there's a role-playing scenario, just a hunt down Yakun, 
and his hundred men. Yeah, there's a few decent uh, there is, yeah. um, campaign stroke one-off adventures pop out of this. Yeah. So on to chapter four. It's called Chaos Lord. So Elric is super bummed that Yakuna sorcerer is his way out of things. So he has DT dispatch men all over the Young Kingdoms to find Cimmeril. Months pass. Dragon riders fly the skies. They do. No, but no dice. Nobody can find him. No. Nope. Maybe Elric's, he's gone to switch. Elric's self-reflective, but still, he remains somewhat sympathetic to Yakun's perspective, which once again, it's like, Elric, come on, man. Yeah. Get a grip. Yeah, you make, you make a mistake once, blah, 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 yeah, yeah. you know, the old saying, but yeah. Jesus Christ, what... What's he seeing, Yakun? Yeah. Uh, well, I think this this gives a little bit of indication. I think it's not so much what he sees in Yakun. It's his hurt. It's his own terrible opinion of himself. Yeah, and that feeling that that feeling I think that everybody has when they're anxious and down. And that's one of the things I kind of that I find. You know, we we joke about Elric being a murky emo twat, but actually he is. Everybody's been Elric at some point because he yeah. doubts himself and he has all of his anxieties. And it's like, oh, maybe maybe it is me. Yeah. Maybe he is right. Maybe it is me, and that's quite ad- that's quite um, relatable. And to be fair, they're, they're probably right because you know if you from as we said before, from a Mel Nabonian perspective, mm. Elric's rubbish, isn't he? Yeah, he's he's an overthinker. He's a procrastinator. He's too soft, isn't he? Yeah. So yeah, yeah he's and he's obviously got dad problems. Yeah. So he's thinking to himself, and he thinks, <laughs> finally, one can only judge oneself by one's actions. Thought Elric. I have looked at what I have done, not at what I have meant to do or thought I would like to do, and what I have done has, in the main, been foolish, destructive, and with little point. Yakun was right to despise me, and that was why I hated him so. So he's he's yeah. actually putting Yakun in the position of being right again. Yeah, emotional intelligence from the from the lad. Yeah, more months pass. Search parties return with no news. So, again, another game idea, one-off game, um, or maybe even a series of games. Apologies to people listening who don't play games, but we do. So, so the idea of a bunch of Melanie warriors sent out into the Young Kingdoms on a mission to find Cimmeril. Oh, possibility endless. They're out there, yeah. Mm. You could even meet uh, Smeog and Baldhead well, this in is, a tavern. Yeah, this, this is one thing that I think... I'm generally quite critical not, of the Stormbringer not... role-playing game because I don't want to be a Phil Carey and Pike man. No, no, who does? You know, yeah, is, yeah, but that's essentially what the game is yeah. kind of built for. It's adventuring in the world of the Young Kingdoms. But actually, if the party are all Melnabonians, nobles, warriors, and you get to experience the world from the perspective of the Melnabonians, that's interesting because that's what yeah. the books are. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think the, the only problem with that is it depends on the players, don't it? Because Melnabonians are generally arses. It's mm. kind of... You don't want murder pobos and yeah. I think we're quite fortunate then the people that we, oh, play we are. With, yeah, they're, yeah, they're, so. they're not all you know total murder hobos. No, um, no, no. But I, I agree. It's it's an interesting premise, yeah. especially if you get the uh, son of Doctor Jester there. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Meanwhile, Elric's working on buffing himself up. He's working on new potions, new herbal remedies, and he gets in the library to study some dangerous grimoires. I do like I do like the word grimoire. It's a good word, isn't it? It's have you got any word. grimoires in your bookshelf? Sadly not, I don't think. No. I, I could just say I have. I imagine you might. You know what, fuck it, I have. You've got a lot of books. Got a lot of books. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say now, some of them are grimoires. Yeah, I've, I've got a grimoire as yeah. well. Yeah. yeah. Um, so his, his, his entire purpose is in uh, studying all these dangerous grimoires is to summon a chaos lord. 
Yeah, and I think to, just to, to go back to kind of economy of language, mm. all of that, which we've just been wittering on about for about 10 minutes, yeah. is two pages. Yeah. Yeah, which yeah. is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that is two pages long of Malabunians going out to the Young Kingdom, Elric with his soliloquy, two pages of text pretty much. Yeah, I think lots of people can, can learn from that. Yeah. Because that could be like probably half a book with yeah. some some of the readers some of the writers I've yeah, read. Yeah, very true. When he had meditated for more than five hours, Elric took a brush and a jar of ink and began to paint both walls and floor with complicated symbols, some of which were so intricate that they seemed to disappear at an angle to the surface on which they had been laid. At last this was done, and Elric spread-eagled himself in the very centre of his huge room, face down, one hand upon his grimoire, the other, with the Actorius upon it, stretched palm down. The moon was full, a shaft of its light fell directly upon Elric's head, turning the hair to silver, and then the summoning began. Which is awesome. It's really cool, that bit. I yeah. think some, some of it reminds me a bit of Lovecraft. I don't know why. Just... Yeah, it's the um, weird angles. Yeah, mm. and... And to be honest, you know, I think magic and sorcery is generally pretty crap in a lot of books, but it, it's it's quite interesting because a lot of it is quite alien, apart from the poems, which we were yeah. slagging off earlier. Yeah. This, is, this is more like it. <coughs> we'll get to that in a bit, but there's another summoning later on as well, and these summonings are much more interesting and much more sinister-sounding yeah, yeah. than a bad sub-Tolkien poem about, you know, rhyme and grime yeah. or whatever the hell it was. So he thinks he's failed at first, but Ariok comes at first in the form of a fly, but then in the form he uses many times in the stories, which is that of the beautiful youth. Yeah, can I just uh, just go back slightly to mm-hmm. the when he's doing the summoning? So it just says, Elric sent his mind into twisting tunnels of logic across endless planes of ideas through mountains of symbolism and endless universes of alternative truths. He sent his mind out further and further, and as it went... He sent with it the words which issued from his writhing lips, words that few of his contemporaries would understand, though their very sound would chill the blood of any listener. That is that's cool. That's very again, it's very Lovecraft. Yeah, yeah. It's also that thing about sending your mind out into weird places. Have you ever read House of the House of the Borderland by William R. Hodgson? Not for years. Yeah, you know what? We should do that. We should. We should do that because that was one of uh, Pops's books that he gave to me. Sadly, the original version of it got chewed up by my dog. Back, you remember exactly. Bella? Back at really? Skeller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so my granddad's um, beautiful sphere edition of The House on the Borderlands with the pig man on the cover, which is a yes, white dwarf yeah, cover yeah, as well. One, yeah. She chewed that to pieces. Really? I'm drunk with Phil when we first got together, and I'm telling her about my granddad's books because I'm a boring bastard. Yeah. And I'm telling her about that specific cover. And then for Christmas that year, I unwrap a present, and it's a shrink-wrapped, pristine condition copy of that exact same sphere edition. So I have got it again, she is in perfect girl. condition, but it's not it's not the same one, but it might as well be. And it's actually in better condition, because it's like it's like new. Yeah. Bella Fabulous. Want, Bella wasn't the Alsatian, was she? No, Bella was the one that the, was kind of fat and old, but yeah. thought she could take the Alsatian yeah. and regularly tried yeah, to. Yeah, she was cool. What was the Alsatian called? Uh, Tess. Yeah. Mm. That's a time-travelling Blast bit. from the past. Just a bit, yeah. Yeah. And a beautiful youth stood where the fly had hovered. The beautiful youth spoke in a beautiful voice, soft and sympathetic, yet manly. Mm-hmm. Kind of like me. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was clad in a robe that was like a liquid jewel, and yet which did not dazzle Elric, for in some way no light seemed to come from it. 
There was a slender sword at the youth's belt and he wore no helm but a circlet of red fire. His eyes were wise and his eyes were old and when they were looked at closely they could be seen to contain an ancient and confident evil. So we have that conversation earlier on about Grand Bretagne potentially being of law but the history of the room staff being generally godless. But at this stage we're still really getting that kind of idea that chaos still has the evil tag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Ariok is deeply evil and it's... I don't think there's any kind of indication in the Corum novels that chaos is anything other than pretty much evil. No, they're all wrong ones, aren't they? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, Ariok kind of kind of just alluded that he invented humans for a laugh, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. You know, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll do Corum. Yeah. We'll do Corum we before long. In fact, once we've finished this and we've done Dernus and the Dark Straits of Regolathium, <laughs> we'll we'll uh, we'll start on Corum. Elric effectively does the deal with the devil now, even though he's fully fearful of the And he really, does, he really does sell his soul, doesn't he? He does, totally. Yeah. Says the youth was taller now than Elric. He looked down at the Emperor of Melnubine and he smiled the smile that the fly had smiled. You alone are fit to serve Ariok. It is long since I was invited to this plane, but now that I am here, I shall aid you, Elric. I shall become your patron. I shall protect you and give you strength and the source of strength. The master I be, and slave you be. How must I serve you, Duke Ariok? Elric asked, having made a monstrous effort at self-control, for he was filled with terror by the implications of Ariok's words. You will serve me by serving yourself for the moment. Later, a time will come when I shall call upon you to serve me in specific ways, but for the moment, I ask little of you, save that you swear to serve me. And that's another piece of that Elric's fate jigsaw slips yeah. into place. And of course, we'll we'll see as time goes by whether he actually fulfills that bargain. But he's made the bargain. And yeah, has he done it for love? Or has he done it for revenge? Or mm. has he done it for... He's, he's done it because Cimmeril. That's yeah, pretty much yeah. it, isn't it? Yeah. He, he, you know, if Ayakun had just fucked off... On his own. On his own. Gone to live on an island, yeah, maybe. Probably oh. not overly worried, but it's all about Cimmeril. So Elric swears... And his course to his ultimate fate and the fate of the young king- kingdoms is essentially cast. And then Ariok points Elric to the nations of, uh, here we go, pronunciation time, Owen, Oin. I went for Oin. Oin. Yeah. The nations of Oin and Yu, yeah. which Yakun has conquered through sorcery and with the Mirror of Memories, a powerful artifact that contains the memories of potentially millions that have looked into it. Confusion plus five. Mm, mm. And uh, Ariok says, yeah, you know what? You know what you need to get there? You need the ship which sails over land and sea. Well, of course you do. Magic well, ship. Yeah, you need a magic ship. Yeah. You could just go on, on horse or donkey, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, chapter five, the ship which sails over land and sea, he actually does check with DT regarding could we go there on dragons instead. Yeah. You know, magic ships, eh, how about the dragons? They're not for everyone, are they? No, but the dragons are all tuckered out still. And um, this is another really, really great Dive Into Var chapter. It is, yeah. It's, it's almost all from Dive Into Var's point of view, which is really... It's, it's a good character. So it turns out he needs the ship, but there's some really, really nice um, narrative and dialogue between Elric and Dive Into Var. And Elric strategizes with him, he confides in him. There's some really kind of cool bits where... He's diving to starts to feel the burden of Elric's conscience and he and he doesn't like it because it feels unmelanibonean. Yeah. But nevertheless, he, he he's taking it on board. And as this chapter goes on, Elric gets 
more and more high and Ivan Tavar gets more and more introspective and kind of trapped with his thoughts. But Elric knows that he needs the help of Strasher again because, you know, it's all right saying the ship that sails on land and, on, on land and sea. But he remembers from his reading in the library that he probably needs the help of Strasher. So off they go to an isolated beach and Elric begins a summoning. And once again, this is a, a much cooler and more interesting take on how you might summon a, a water elemental than the yeah, bad poem, the poem. Yeah. in the first chapter. Diving Tavar was no stranger to the high speech. As a Melanobanean noble, he had been taught it as a matter of course. But the words seemed nonetheless strange to him, for Elric used peculiar inflections and emphases, giving the words a special and secret weight, and chanting them in a voice which ranged from bass groan to falsetto shriek. It was not pleasant to listen to such noises coming from a mortal throat, and now Diving Tavar had some clear understanding of why Elric was reluctant to use sorcery. The Lord of the Dragon Caves, Melnibonean though he was, found himself inclined to step backwards a pace or two, even retire to the cliff tops, and watch over Elric from there, and he had to force himself to hold his ground as the summoning continued. So more more great description of, of how genuinely terrifying and, and, and awful it must be to, to witness <clears throat> this. And again, some if they get it right in a TV show. Yeah, yeah, be cool. Th- this'll be the stuff that would be unique. And well, we won't really be seeing it, anybody else doing it. Yeah, and diving as far as like going to be, if, if you're doing a TV show, he'd be a main character, wouldn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's some some really cool stuff, there's just that interplay between the two characters, you know, because Elric's kind of, as you said, he's quite on a high, and he said, you know, when all this is done and Princess Samuel brought home, you shall blow the dragon horn and our dragon brothers will hear it and you and I shall sing the song of the dragon now goads shall flash as we straddle flame flame flam flame flame <laughs> <laughs> and his mate sweet club so basically they were all going to get on the dragons and it's great and but down to our his brow was cloudy let us pray that day will come my lord but i cannot help this nagging thought which tells me that imri's days are numbered mm. and my own life nears its close yeah they mentions his son which elric didn't know about so we've got Diving Storm, and the other one was, it was Diving Mav, wasn't it? Yeah, Mav, yeah. yeah. Diving Storm is yeah. obviously makes his appearance in Storm. Of course, yeah. He, he, he will be back he as, as a grown be. man. He will be. Yeah. Which kind of suggests, because Storm's obviously in Stormbringer, how long is Elric pissing around in the Young Kingdoms with Moongun? I suppose there, there are a lot of stories, aren't there? Yeah. Yeah. Because he's in Tanalon for a bit, isn't he? Yes. Yeah, yes, yeah. and he's settled with is it Marshella of the Dawn? No, he's quite Zarazinia. A, Zarazinia, yeah, yeah. He's settled with her for quite a while. Marshella, he, he had conjugals. Didn't yeah, he? that's right. Yeah, I mean we've not even got there, so we're kind of preempting what's going to happen. Yeah, I'm, I'm, from memory, I think Philip Carno kidnap his girlfriend about forty-seven times. Philip Carno was he was like a rubbish Pantangian, wasn't he? Philip Carno is the closest thing you get in Elric to a Conan villain. Yeah. And but what was the woman called? Was it Zarazinia, wasn't it? No, Zarazinia was like she was about sixteen in it. That right. was his his um he met her in the forest of trues, I think. Mm. Off the top of my head. You know what? We'll get to that. <coughs> yeah. Possibly in twenty twenty three. Yeah. But we will get to it. 
so still exists. It, once again, it seems like he's he's not really successfully summoned anything, but then, of course, Strasher um, comes piling up the beach. The watery bulk rocks up, and uh, Strasher's aware and concerned that Elric's invited the Chaos Lords, but, you know, he's, he's kind of pragmatic about it. Well, it turns out that the ship is co-owned by Strasher and his brother Grom. King Grom. Yeah, Grom of the land below the roots, Grom of the ground, and all that lives under it. My brother, Grom. Long since, even as we elementals count time, Grom and I built that ship so that we could travel between the realms of earth and water whenever we chose. But we quarrelled. May we be cursed for such foolishness. And we fought. There were earthquakes, tidal waves, volcanic eruptions, typhoons and battles, in which all the elementals joined, with the result that new continents were flung up and old ones drowned. It was not the first time we'd fought each other, but it was the last. And finally, lest we destroy each other completely, we made a peace. I gave Grom part of my domain, and he gave me the ship which sails over land and sea. But he gave it somewhat unwillingly, and thus it sails the sea better than it sails the land, for Grom thwarts its progress whenever it can. Still, if the ship is of use to you, you shall have it. Mm. I wonder if I wonder if that'll be a feature. I think it probably will. So DT and Elric head back. Elric's now aware of, of his sons. And DT actually does plead with Elric to take responsibility for his sons and their welfare, but Elric doesn't really get what he's driving at, I don't no, think. By no. saying it, Davin Tavares really saying, you know what, there are Melnibaneans. Will they have a future? Will they have a future? And Elric's like, oh, it's going to be ace. It'll be amazing. Because Elric still kind of high as a kite on all this stuff and he's upbeat. And he seems to have transferred all his angst and foreboding to Darwin Tavar. He does. And, and Darwin Tavar is really fearing Elric's self-absorption at this point. He's, he's still upbeat, but impatient. And, and this is so out of character for Elric, Darwin Tavar actually starts to wonder if Elric's getting a bit doolally from all the potions and sorcery. And he expresses his concern, but Elric rebuffs him good-naturedly. And then the ship arrives. So Elric's still high and in good spirits as slaves take supplies on board the ship. And the Melnibanean crew board because he's taking a pretty decent sized gang with him. And soon they're shooting over the land, and even Diving Tavar starts to cheer up. But of course, it doesn't last because the ship starts to buck and list from side to side, and a sailor falls from the rigging, smashing his, all of his bones. Something's not quite right. But first, they go to a, a waterfront inn at a place called heading outward and coming safely back home again. And he has a bit of a chat with uh, with the barman, mm. which is very D&D. He asks him a few questions, and he's the usual NPC, not massively useful, <laughs> goes, I don't know, to be honest, it'll be ace, have some wine. Yeah. Yeah, but then, obviously, some uh, whaling national teeth guy overboard, yep. and boom. Elric stared at the body of the fallen sailor. Suddenly, the mood of gaiety left him completely, and he gripped the rail in his black gauntleted hands, and he gritted his strong teeth, and his crimson eyes glowed, and his lips curled in self-mockery. What a fool I am! What a fool I am to tempt the gods so! So, old Elric is back, all of a sudden. Mm. Still, though the ship moved almost as swiftly as it had done, there seemed to be something dragging at it, as if Grom's minions clung on to the bottom, as barnacles might cling in the sea. And Elric sensed something around him in the air, something in the rustling of the trees through which they passed, something in the movement of the grass and the bushes and the flowers over which they crossed, something in the weight of the rocks, of the angle of the hills, and he knew what he sensed was the presence of Grom of the ground, Grom of the land below the roots, Grom who desired to own what he and his brother Strasher had once owned jointly, 
what they had made as a sign of the unity between them and over which they had then fought. Rome wanted very much to take back the ship which sails over land and sea, and Elric, staring down at the black earth, became afraid. Oh, Elric. What have you done? Yeah, you got yourself all high and, and full of yourself very briefly there. And that is where we shall leave part two. Part two of Elric of Maldivanaire. So I'm liking it. It's going well. Elric, yeah, is a bit of a goof. But you know what? He's, I kind of love the characterization of him. And, and you get the feel now that... He's made a terrible mistake. He's made a terrible mistake. But it's, it also comes across as a more rounded character. And I think that's because of... The additional narrative. In the, in the 60s stories, really, the only alternative perspective you get on Elric is from Moonglum's perspective. Yeah, it is. And yeah. Moonglum isn't really much of a character. He's not massively rounded, is he? No. He's just there to go. He's, he's the great mouser, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, basically. <coughs> um, and, you know, of course, we haven't covered any of the stories with Moonglum in. We, we will no. do at some point. But Diamond Savar is, is a much more interesting secondary character. And that kind of whole perspective he has on Elric and the fact that Elric's anxieties and moods transfer to him to the point where he becomes super down and fearful for the future of not only his civilization but his sons and he has that terrible premonition that everything is going to grind to a halt which turns out to be pretty true is all good stuff. There's there's one bit which I can't find at the moment but he's basically he's talking about Elric and when he's looking at him he's talking about Maybe he's almost going back to what the amount of bunny ancestors were like. Yeah, but I can't. I can't find the chapter. Ah, I've, I've actually got a note about that because I thought that was really interesting. The fact that he's got enough kind of nous to think like that instead of just going, "Ah, Elric's a bit of a rubbish Malnaboni," and he's almost there's one bit where he's he's basically talking about that Elric's almost like a flashback to their ancestors. Yeah. It's 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 here. So there's a point where um, it's after the summoned Strasher and it's after he's had the conversation about his sons. He says, Diving to Val was struck by the same emotion which had filled him on the beach watching Elric begin his rune. Perhaps it was not by chance that he had used the example of his sons when speaking to Elric earlier that day for he had a feeling that was almost protective as if Elric were a boy looking forward to some treat which might not bring him the joy he expected. Diving to Val dismissed the thoughts as best he could and went to his own bed. Elric might blame himself for all that had occurred in the question of Yerkun and Cimmeril, but Divin Tavar wondered if he too were not to blame in some part. Perhaps he should have offered his advice more cogently, more vehemently even, or earlier, and made a stronger attempt to influence the young emperor. And then, in the Melnibonean manner, he dismissed such doubts and questions as pointless. There was only one rule, seek pleasure however you would. But had that always been the Melnibonean way? Diving to Val wondered suddenly if Elric might not have regressive rather than deficient blood. Could Elric be a re- reincarnation of one of their most distant ancestors? Had it always been in the Melnibonean character to think only of oneself and one's own gratification? And again, Diving to Val dismissed the question. What use was there in questions after all? The world was the world, a man was a man. Before he sought his own bed, he went to visit both his old mistresses, waking them up and insisting that he see his sons, Diving Slam and diving Mav, and when his sons, sleepy-eyed, bewildered, had been brought to him, he stared at them for a long time before sending them back. He had said nothing to either, but he had brought his brows together frequently, and rubbed at his face and shaken his head, and when they had gone, he said to Niopal and Saramal, his mistresses, who were as bewildered as their offspring, let them be taken to the dragon cave tomorrow, and begin their learning. That was it, yeah. 
which yeah. I thought was a really cool bit. Yeah. And it really fleshes out his character, but also fleshes out Elric's character as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah I just... think El- El- Elric's character development in this really dwarfs anything that took place in any of the 60s stories, and it's largely because of diving into that perspective. Yeah, it, it needed that, I think, and it needed mm. that shift of POV across the story, I think. Mm. But, I mean, yeah, back to the TV show, he's got to be a, a major character, really. Yeah, well, let's 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 do Lord Shark's ostentatious couch mm. for this show then. So today, Lord Shark's ostentatious couch is an old crappy sofa on Markham Seafront covered in cigarette burns, and it's really really damp. Again, yeah. Somebody today on Twitter did some really great fantasy casting suggestions. Lawrence of Arabia era Peter O'Toole oh, so that, yeah. as Elric. Yeah, that would be very cool. But one of the people that was suggested it was in Twin Peaks The Return as a potential Elric, who I think I had pegged as a, probably a good Yakun, has popped up in The Witcher. As Which some... one is he? So, you remember the, f- the first episode of The Witcher, there's like a, a villain on horseback who's leading the army. Oh, in yeah, Black yeah, armor. yeah, yeah. That's the guy who the pastor suggested would make a great Elric stroke Yakun. But The Witcher's bagged him already. Although yeah. I haven't watched all The Witcher, so I don't know how often he pops up in it. I have sadly watched all of The Witcher. All right, unlucky. Does he pop up again? Uh, he does. Yeah, he, he's in it. Right. I mean, it's sad to tell with all the crazy flashbacks and time shifts, but um, yeah, yeah, I'd, yeah, he was all right. I think he, he's probably looks wise, maybe he's. It's hard to tell from an acting mm. point of view, so I don't think he had to do much. Right. To be honest. Mm. Um, yeah. So I don't know. It's. As long as they don't go down... I mean, the Witcher had elves in it, didn't it, at one point? Yeah, that's... You know what? That's the last The last episode I watched is the one that had the elves in it. At that point, I was like, yeah, I'm out. Yeah, yeah, I watched that bit. Well, mm. I've watched it all. Um, it was it was all right. Mm. It was what it was. Mm. Again, White Wolf. Yeah. Uh, slightly weird eyes. Yeah. The fact that they refer to him as the White Wolf really is colossally irritating. It is. But, you know, I think other than that, it's, it's, it's kind of all superficial, really, because the, the, the world of The Witcher isn't really a mococ world. It's just lame, generic, derivative fantasy nonsense. And and The Witcher character is more Solomon Cain than Elric. Yeah, you're probably right, actually. Yeah. It's, very, it's, it's that kind of uh, traditional, gruff, as I said, charismaless mm. lead, yeah. pretty much. Which is a shame, because Henry Cavill, if he's yeah, allowed he's a, to, has got quite a lot yeah, of charisma. Yeah, he's, he's a good actor, yeah. yeah. I just think, um, yeah, it's one of those things. It it was all right. Yeah, and then we'll we'll have to periodically return to this whole issue of the Elric show, even though it'll probably be years, and then we'll never hear anything, and nobody will talk about it again. But I think once we've done a few more of the Elric stories, we should probably do an episode on that Stormbringer script. Yeah, definitely. Which that was is, really quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. Because um, it's not Elric, it's Ulric, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a bit very... of a mashup of Elric and Von Beck. And Bastable. And, and Eric and Bastable <laughs> and airships. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's quite interesting, actually. I was surprised like when I read it. It was, yeah, um, yeah call it Stormbringer. It was probably not a good idea. Yeah, it was a bit of a stretch. But yeah. it was interesting reading. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. Right, anyway, we have a pan of chilli to tuck into and a shitload more interesting beers in the fridge. Sadly, we're going to miss our veganuary target because it's basically all beef. I, yeah, I, I, I apologise if you had a veganuary. Yeah, as if. Yeah. But um, um, I've, yeah, dry January, veganuary, whatever. Yeah, I just right, right, right. that. Amusingly, one of the coppers Phil, Phil works with has been calling it vad January. 
That's, I edit that I one suppose, out. <laughs> I suppose that's police humour. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I'll, I probably will edit that out. Yeah. Right, so, um, once again, Loz, thanks very, very much for your time, and we'll get back together soon to do the last part of Elric of Melanie which I can't wait to do, because, damn it, I need to do Dennis and the Dark Straits of Regolathium. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, again, I read the first three pages, and yeah, um, I, I want to get into the Corum, but... Yeah, well, well, yeah, we'll do that. Well, Once we've got um, those out of the way, we'll do Night of Swords, I think. Yeah, cool. Yeah, because, and then we'll only really have to do the Eternal Champion, and then we've covered the big four. Well, yeah. actually, not the big five, because when I'm do- now doing Jerry Cornelius with her soon. So. Exactly. Oh, we're making progress. Yeah. We're making progress. All right, dude. Thanks very much. Thanks once again, are due to Loz for his excellent support and his uh, excellent insights and his third go as guest on Breakfast in the Ruins. And thanks also, as ever, to our patrons, Fred, Norman, Malpertius, David, Matt and Tom. Really appreciate it, guys. Thanks ever so much for chipping in. But also some additional thanks to, once again, the Twitter crowd um, have been absolutely fabulous with some of their feedback, but particularly to Tom Murphy and Yestin Pettigrew, who tipped me off a while back that they'd posted links to the podcast in the Michael Moorcock fan group, Multiversal Redoubt, and indicated that not only does Michael Moorcock post in there, as, fittingly, Jeremiah Cornelius, but also that he'd listened to the podcast and enjoyed it, and even wished happy birthday to Phil. And I must say, when, when I pointed that out to Phil and let her know, she was so happy and overwhelmed she had a little cry. So, thanks, Yestin. Thanks, Tom. And also... Thanks and gratitude to Murcock for being so gracious to actually not only listen, but to offer us some positive feedback. That's absolutely fantastic. As usual, recording with Natasha um, has thrown us for a loop due to dogs and booze. So as a result, whilst this episode was recorded after The Duel in the School Part 2, once again, it's coming out before while we resolve some of those sound issues. And again, my friend Neil is providing me with excellent support in his spare time to actually solve some of these issues. So thanks again, Neil, not only for for that, but also for sitting down with me and showing me a few bits and pieces about Audition. Now, my old mucker, Johnny Royale, got me a copy of Audition some time back, but it's a little bit too complicated for a novice such as me. But I am just starting to figure it out. And for the first time this episode has been constructed in Audition rather than GarageBand. So I guess it will be for you listeners to decide whether there's a bump in quality. But, you know, either way, let me know. I'll be interested to find out. So in a couple of weeks' time, we hope to have The Jewel in the Skull Part 2 published. And on top of that, another guest. He and I have been dancing around this for quite a while. He's recorded a couple of little extracts, but we still haven't managed to hook up and record remotely which is something i'm still looking at figuring out so thanks again everybody for listening and uh well i'll see you next time but in the meantime on the moonbeam roads mm-hmm.